This is Karen with NewClevelandRadio.net, and it is time to bring back How to Super Age with Elise Collins. And Elise, I have been waiting for this for so long, and I know that you had some personal reasons that you needed to take the time off, but we're so glad to have you back, as are so many listeners. It's it's incredible how many people are saying, what happened to how to super age? So welcome. Thank you so much. Yes, I think I was, I was super aging. So my plate was full. We had some weather incidents here in the Bay Area back, I think in March and literally the, you can see the wallpaper, but the uh, roof in this ceiling, it's an indoor room, the ceiling, uh, I don't want to say it, it did actually collapse. And so luckily my computer was okay. Cause it sits right here. Uh, we had leaks, we had power outages, a huge flood. So I was dealing with that aftermath. And then my mom had health challenges. We had a lot going on and that's, that's how life goes. And then I got a job and, and now I'm back. So I'm so happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, tell us about your special guest today. I am going to. So uh, bef- she's an author and I met her through Women's National Book Association. I really um, am so excited about this guest. I also just want to say a little bit about our sponsor today, or I'm going to say that my book is sponsoring today because this is how to super age. So uh, we are going to be talking with a super ager and Superager is one of those words. It's getting out there into the mainstream. When I wrote this book uh, several years ago, people really didn't know what a superager was. They were like, what is that? And I didn't know when I started writing the book. I just said, oh, what is that? I want to be that. Uh, Superager sounds like something I want to be. And now in the last month, I think last month, uh, AARP sent out a magazine or their little news newspaper, hard copy newspaper with uh, super agers all over it. So it's really getting out there into the mainstream. I believe that super agers like our guest today are using tools, tricks, tips, using their agency to get through life, heal and overcome. And in today's case, you're going to hear a little bit of a dramatic story. Our guest has written a book. I'm not going to give away the details because it's such a good book. I want everyone to read it. It's a wonderful healing story. Um, You know, it's got some, it's got some heavy parts to it, but um, it shows you that you can recover. That's what we say a lot. You can read recovery or heal, whatever, language you want to use. And my book helps you to, you know, more with the tools and things that I've learned through yoga and Indian medicine. So I'm going to now introduce our guest and I didn't actually get a bio uh, or I forgot to, cause I have been, I'm out of the practice. Usually I read a bio. So maybe we'll just have Mary Beth uh, introduce herself, tell us a little bit about herself and then we'll get into the questions. How does that sound Mary Beth? Perfect. Perfect. Um, I was actually thinking about the super ager and really for me, life started almost in middle age because I had a, um, a meth use disorder, you know, I was addicted to methamphetamine basically from 17 to 32. 
And so when I got sober, you know, I was already 32 years old. And I, and I, I really, I was well aware that I had, you know, wasted my education and, you know, worked my way down the corporate ladder is what I say, because I couldn't hold a job. Um, but, you know, that was the beginning of, of things moving forward. And so professionally, I had to sort of start from where I was. And I, my first job after I got home from rehab was a part-time, low-level, uh, temporary administrative job. And then I moved into a full-time, permanent, mid-level administrative job, and then onto a supervisory job where I got a promotion. And at six years sober, when I was 39, I went to Berkeley Law School. And so that was the beginning of my, you know, next professional phase. And I worked at a big law firm, and then I um, I worked for the federal government uh, doing class actions. And when I was 53, I was appointed a federal administrative law judge. And so I did that for five and a half years. And then I took, I always emphasize early retirement <laughs> when I was 59. And now I, I do a lot of advocacy and speaking. So I'm on the board for She Recovers Foundation. I'm on the board for Life Rings Secular Recovery. I'm on the advisory council for the Higher Calling Foundation. And I, um, I write, I have my memoir, which is From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. I write opinion pieces in the last couple of years. So basically in my late 50s, I, for the first time, I've been in the Wall Street Journal and the LA Times and Recovery Today and others. Um, and I speak, I, I speak at conferences and I speak at fundraisers for organizations and I do podcasts and TV and radio. And so it's really advocacy around substance recovery, but also trauma recovery and that interplay. Um, and also in particular about multiple pathways that we all recover in different ways and there's many different approaches. And so, and so that's, I'm 62 now and that's, that's what I've been doing for the last three years. My husband says, I need to look retirement up in the dictionary because I don't know what it means. <laughs> um, but this, you know, this is, this allows me to do where, what, where my heart is in my retirement, to be of service, to be active, but yet at the same time, not have the weight of a full-time job, not the weight of making important decisions as when I was a judge. And so it's really the best of all worlds for me at this point. <laughs> Exciting. I love that. And I love that, you know, because that, that's inspiring to many of us who maybe didn't feel like we lived our best lives as in our youth, you know, because sometimes it gets sold that way in the media that between, you know, teenage years and I don't know, your 30s, that's your best life. If you missed out on that, your life is downhill. And that's just not the case for so many people for so many different reasons. Um, and, and so that's a beautiful illustration in my book. I have stories. I didn't know you, I would put your story in because it's such a great story and the tagline. It's so good. How can you resist that from junkie to judge? You know, like it's, it's just like in an instant you get it, you go like, okay, she's lived, you know, I trust her too. So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what do you think helped you to, and and you don't have to give away anything in the book because again I want to encourage everyone to read the book or listen to it. It's an audio book as well. And and who did the um the audio book? Was that like I like the voice? Is that your voice? 
No, they did offer it to me, but I felt like I didn't have the right skill set for someone to listen to me for nine hours. And also, to be honest, part of it was the male voices, you know, in the dialogue. I thought I'm just, I just, I don't have this the chops for that. It's one thing to be to listen to me in a podcast for a while, but a very different thing with a book. So it was um, a professional narrator did the book, and I, I was really happy with with the um, with the outcome of that. She did a really good job, I think. I really liked it. And for those of us that are um, active, you know, we have all ages listening to this podcast, but a lot of us and, and younger people don't read physical books as much. That's a, that's a real theme, but the audiobooks are great. And this audiobook, the voice, I really enjoyed the voice. Cause there's something, I don't know if anyone else experiences this. Sometimes the voice, I just, I like the story or I like the book, but the audio voice irritates me, but I really enjoyed her narration. It really felt real. It felt like, yeah, I just, it's, it drew me into the story. Um, so yeah, um, besides the audio <laughs> of the book, what do you think was the biggest thing that helped you to turn your trajectory around? I also have a degree in gerontology, which I got in my fifties and I love studying, um, you know, there's so much, you study theory, you study so many things in gerontology. That's why I love it. Cause it's such a, a smorgasbord of things. But one of the things we learn is looking at someone's, what we call life course. Now it's kind of geeked out language. Cause we don't go around saying how, what's your life course, <laughs> but, but, but it's kind of like a novel. Like each one of us is a book. I think of it like each one of us has our own story, our own novel. And the best stories are ones where we go like up and down, you know, and, and it's not fun to live that. No, because <laughs> What's the, we just want the apps, but what do you think changed? You know, it looked like in your, in your early life, you were a cool, smart kid, cool kid, smart kid, which is like, I envy that. Cause I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be that cool, smart kid. Maybe I was smart, but I don't think I was as cool as Mary Beth. Mary Beth was a really cool kid. And then, but you can see where, uh, the abuse and, you know, it's, it's yeah. She, and, and that was also how accepted it was. Growing up in the 70s, you know, people just kind of look the other way, domestic, I mean, in the legal profession, my mom is also a judge, full disclosure, everyone. And I know what she went through as a judge, seeing how laws change and how in the beginning of her law career, it was just like, oh, you know, domestic violence, sure, that's okay, just take, I don't remember your words in the book, but it should be handled at home, you know, and, and children were just really unprotected. It's hard to read that, it's emotional, but you know, that it's part of your life story. What do you think helped you to change the trajectory? Like maybe one or two things, just one or two. I mean, I'll say a couple of things. One is that um, it is very common when people go into recovery for substances that they also have a trauma history and or additional mental health challenges. And so it turned out when I went to therapy, when I got out of rehab, I was to my surprise, but correctly <laughs> diagnosed with PTSD. Right. I didn't even know that I had it. I didn't know you could have PTSD if you weren't a war vet. Like that wasn't on my radar. And for me, it showed up as really severe anxiety. And so I think one of the good things I did in my recovery was I did um, I did recognize that my trauma and my drug use were connected. And so I knew that I had to address both. And so I went into I found a therapist who had expertise in trauma and some knowledge of substances. And so that was a really um, big step for me. And the other thing I'll say is, I think a lot of what helped me move forward was that I actually took control of my recovery from the beginning. Um, when I went into rehab, they were telling me I had to do recovery a certain way that wasn't a good fit for me. 
And I actually didn't, didn't do it that way. I really, I, I, I approached it as in, I will make sure that I am doing all the readings and I'm listening and I'm doing the homework and I'm thinking about it. I didn't want to be like rejecting everything. Oh, that doesn't sound right. That's a, but I, but at the same time, I was, I was, I was analyzing it. Do I think that this technique or this idea or this approach will work for me? And I did that from the start. And that really helped me start to build up my, my competence and my confidence to handle all the other areas of my life. Because it turns out that that same skill set of, you know, sort of thinking about what my, where am I trying to go? How do I think I might get there? What are, for me, for example, when I got home, I made a list of all the things I had to work on. I could not possibly work on all those things like at once. And so I, I prioritized, I set initial goals, I built initial plans, I implemented them. And then I would set, once I accomplished that goal, what's the next step? You know, when can I tackle these other things on the list that I couldn't tackle in the beginning? And that approach, it turned out, that's how you handle all of life like that. I use that approach for everything. And it really helped me keep moving forward, not not rushing forward as part of me wanted because I was 32 and sort of starting over. But, you know, step by step, incrementally moving forward bit by bit. And that really builds up. And it's amazing what you can accomplish that way in two years or five years or I'm about to have 30 years of sobriety. And so I think those were some of the things that really helped me build um, build a good foundation and move forward in my life. Congratulations on those 30 years. And what I heard is baby steps, prioritizing. And another thing that I heard um, is agency. And that's something when we study the life course, uh, there's things like we, you know, I mean, depending on your beliefs, you were born into a certain family, a certain time, how we got there. I'm not going to go into what you believe because you could believe you chose it or you didn't chose it. You were a victim or not a victim or whatever, you know, not necessarily a victim, but um, circumstances can be very difficult for us. And we can't really change who our parents are, where we were born, et cetera, et cetera. But there is one thing that we always have, and that is agency. Even, you know, I believe uh, Victor Frankl, wrote life's life search for meaning. I may have it wrong, but that, and that's all about like, even just your agency of thought when you're in um, a concentration camp, like that's, that's the most dire circumstance, but in every moment we have that ability to, you know, like what I have control over myself. That's all I have. And so I heard that in your list, you're prioritizing. And even in, because in recovery, from what I know about it, you're supposed to just surrender. And some people, sometimes they just like, you know, they just go so into it that they lose their agency. They lose their sense of self is my, and and that kind of turns everybody off from the recovery movement because it's like, I don't want to be a recovery. I'm saying recovery zombie. I don't know. That's kind of, <laughs> but I, I like the way, and then that you all also develop a body of work. You develop as a speaker you've brought it in, like there's something very powerful. You've brought in um, things that you've learned from recovery and now you're presenting it from your experience and people can relate to that rather than somebody who's just, um, you know, just repeating what, like a parrot. 
Yeah, I mean, a couple of things about it is one is that surrender idea. That is one approach to recovery, but it's not the only approach to recovery. And so, for example, life frame cycle recovery and she recovers. We are our foundations are more empowerment focused. And um, and that is a different way of looking at it and an approach that works for many. Um, and, and then the, the other thing is that, yeah, it was um, the what I what I try to do now is use my story as sort of an ear opener, right? I mean, I was a federal judge. I'm about to have 30 years of sobriety, and it gives me a certain level of credibility that people um, might listen to me and sort of keep their ears a little more open if I'm saying something they don't know or they're not familiar with or that's not consistent with what somebody else told them. And my my goal is always that sort of that education, um, also stigma reduction, right? To really show that. In recovery, um, we are we are we can be a fully productive, you know, happy, functioning member of society. And for me, what that should say is, therefore, let's help people. Let's help the people that are still stuck in the middle of their substance use disorder. If we give them help, look what they can be in their recovery. I mean, they deserve it anyway. They're human beings. But on top of that, they can fully, you know, participate and and be good citizens and and contribute if we can f help them find a way out of the hole that they're in. And so, some of those are some of the reasons as well. Yeah. Well, in your approach to recovery, from what I'm hearing, is you said, here are all these ideas that they're giving me, but I know how I need to live my life, and I might not be able to do all these things in the same way. And I know when I was going through pain management, I went through the exact same thing when they said to me, you know, Karen, you're going to have to change these things and do these things. I said, but I also have a life. So I'm going to listen to what you're saying. I am going to get better, but I may do it in a different order. And once it starts working for you, then you know that when you share it with somebody, they don't have to do it your way either. That's right. I mean, it's interesting because the book, my book is an example of building sort of that individual recovery plan. Um, and, and I and I go into detail how I did it and what I was thinking, but I don't expect people to copy me exactly. Right. I want to just show them the technique, the approach, the way of thinking. What I, I think I think where we go wrong in recovery is if we tell people this is this is what worked for me. Therefore, this will work for everybody or even worse, it's the only thing that worked, which first of all, it's not true. People recover, whether it's from trauma or substances or any other life challenge in multiple ways. It's, but I think it's valid to say, here's what worked for me. I'm sharing it with you for your consideration. Here's some ideas you might find useful. Like that to me is a loving and caring way to do it. It's, it's also leaving the agency and the autonomy with the person that I'm talking to, right? I'm not trying to override your decision-making ability. I'm saying for your consideration, here are some ideas. I love that. It's very person-centered. And um, I think that's much more effective in the long term. Um, so you said you're on the board of She Recovers. Maybe just tell us a little bit about that, exactly what She Recovers, because I sense there's something in there that uh, is different about she about that uh, organization. 
Yeah, so she recovers uh, isn't just for substance recovery, although about 80 or 85% of her members do have that, but it's also trauma recovery, mental health recovery, eating disorder recovery, gambling recovery, um, self-harm, perfectionism, which is often a trauma indicator, right? Overwork. It's everything together because most of the women with substance use disorder or women in general have one or more of the, more than one area they need to work on. And so in other words, you don't have to silo it out like, over here, I talk about my substances. Over here, I talk about my eating. Over here, I talk about my perfectionism. It's all together. And the reason is that those um, conditions, developing them often have an overlap, but the recovery has an overlap too. Um, like the women, a woman might post in the private Facebook group where they share and support. She might say something like, you know, I've been sober for um, for 60 days, but I'm really starting to lose control over my food again or, you know, or something like or my, my perfectionism or my anxiety is showing up because there is an overlap. And she recovers felt like there was nobody in that space. And so they wanted to have that option. Um, the other thing to know is that for She Recovers, those um, the members often do other programs as well. Like they might also do AA or they might also do Life Ring. And that's okay in She Recovers. Like we don't require an exclusive. It's a, you can use it by itself or you can use it as a supplement to the other things that you're doing. That's great. And that's so true for many of us. We have, you know, it's pretty hard to get through life without, <laughs> without trauma and and some kind of uh, cycle of addiction, and one thing leads to another. So, and it can get overwhelming. Like there's so many programs to join, and you're just like, oh well, you know. Or I mean, inside of twelve step or outside of twelve step, and then you're just like, okay, forget it. I'm just gonna throw it all out. So I like that it kind of puts it all together, and you have an affinity with, uh, you know, with other women, and she recovers. That's beautiful. Uh, I had one more question, which just escaped out of my mind, but I'm going to just ask about, um, I know, like, what is your relationship? I know you were kind of raised religious, but what is your, you know, because recovery, sometimes it's like God, goddess, what is your relationship with that God word or religion or whatever you want to say? I mean, I was raised like, a judge, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I was raised Catholic, but I never had a strong connection to it. If I, I would, if you would have asked me when I was young, I would say I believed in God, but I went through a transition in high school where I went to agnostic and by college, it was like, no, actually I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in a God or a higher power. Um, and that was why when I was told 12 steps was the only way, it was a problem because higher power is a mandatory foundation for 12 steps. But the other thing I'll say is that um, in recovery, it's not like all the faith-based people go to 12 steps and all the non-faith-based people go to the other options. Actually, there are atheists and agnostics that make 12 steps work. And there are a lot of faith-based people that are in the other options for different reasons. And it can be, for example, just that powerless idea versus the self-empowerment idea. The self-empowerment idea may fit better with your worldview or feel like it's a stronger foundation. The meeting formats also really vary from group to group, and that can be important. Um, the different approaches, like when I started, the first option I found to 12 steps was women for sobriety. And in a WFS meeting, you don't do the introduction of I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict. The introduction is I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. 
So think about what that says about the core idea of the program. And so um, I always encourage people read up on, you, you know, the options, look at the philosophy, look at the meaning format. One or two of them will sound like my people are there, you know, go, go to that exactly. one. But also, now you don't have to pick and choose. I mean, I, I did multiple programs. I pulled a few ideas out of 12 steps. I also attended Women for Sobriety, um, Life Rings Parent, SOS, I attended, and Smarts Parent, Rational Recovery. And I just, again, I was, I read everything, I was listening, I was attending meetings, and I was pulling the ideas out that I thought I could use. And so today we would call that a patchwork plan or a hybrid plan, but that terminology didn't exist in 93, but that is, that is how I did it. And the other thing I'll say to that too, is that sometimes um, in the beginning, one thing might be a good fit, but over time, you want to broaden your horizon. So for example, some people like the 12 steps um, structure early on, but then like a year, two years out there thinking, well, maybe I want to, you know, see what else is out there or look at other approaches and people will branch out. So there's just so many different ways of tackling it. Um, I, I do trust that and people will if they're listening to themselves and, and and thinking about it, they will they will know what's sort of where is my right next step, what's going to work for me. Um, not that they're going to be perfect in recovery because no, you're not going to be perfect. I don't care what program you're in. Um, but that we do know who we are, you know, in a basic way, and especially as we get some sobriety under us, we start to really connect to our true selves again, and that can help us decide sort of where is the right fit for me, where do I belong, what do I want to try now that maybe I didn't try in the early days. You know what I'm loving about what you're saying is number one there is no certain age when you stop trying okay we can try at any age and that's what I think is so important for all of us to hear and the second thing is we think we're going to go down this straight path the rest of our life and there is no straight path and if you do go down that path typically we're not very happy because we don't we're afraid to turn right or left. Um, and I just went through this with my husband driving from our appointment this morning. He said, when you were here, did you turn right on this street? And I said, no, I went the opposite direction. And he goes, oh, I guess that's another way of going. And it was like, you know, this light bulb went off. That's what life is about. Look around you. What fits for you today? You know, that reminds me of another thing that I talk about sometimes. I think that, look, it's nice having a five-year plan maybe as a goal, but but the reality is we change so much, you know, especially if we are just starting to tackle our substances or our mental health or our trauma. I, we don't know who we're going to be in a year or two. So why are we making decisions for that future person that we haven't met yet, who we haven't met yet, right? I think it's always good to be looking mostly focusing on what's the right next step for me in these different areas and then making a new decision as we move forward because we will grow, we will evolve, our priorities shift, what, what we like or didn't like. Some of it's just experience. I thought I wanted that path, but now that I've gone halfway down it, I realize, you know what? Actually, I don't want it and I'm gonna make a new decision. And you're right, let's give ourselves permission to be evolving and making new choices as we as we learn more about ourselves and as we learn more about where we might want to go. Yeah, I um I think that's a great great plan, you know, start with 5 years but beyond that it may be too much. You can think about it, but especially when you are, you know, I think of the trajectory 
you know, when you switch it dramatically, it's like, it's hard to see where exactly it's going to land and you don't want to force yourself. Cause then it's like, you're going to, you're going to take yourself literally off course. Um, one thing I wanted to just reflect on that may turn into a question, but um, something that I also studied um, when I was studying gerontology is adverse child experiences, because adverse child experiences, and she's nodding, if you're listening, Mary Beth is like, uh-huh, uh-huh. So I guess I'll, I'll just say my reflection, and then maybe you can um, chime in on what your thoughts are on that. Because one of the things in reading your book is thinking about how, uh, these adverse child experiences, they really, I mean, we know from studies that they can cause, you know, chronic disease, they, they interfere with their health, mental, physical, all those things, and they're all tied together. But back in the day, you know, when I was growing up the pretty much the same time as Mary Beth, that nobody was, you know, we weren't screened for them. We, you know, nobody even, it was just normal. Oh, the trauma is normal, you know, get, get, what you know, like, come on, just buck up and and go with it. And I've seen that with my mom. She's, you know, of course, in another generation. But um, now, you know, I think in California, we have a California Surgeon General, and she has asked, especially if you're on Medi-Cal, you are supposed to screen children for adverse childhood experiences, because we end up paying so much for the health, the health costs down the line. And Mary Beth is also nodding. So I would love to hear your thoughts because then also, wait, one more thing I just got to say, because I got so many light bulbs going off when you were talking, you know, maybe that's why we have so much recovery because we need so much. And maybe, maybe that won't happen for future generations, but I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on anything I said, because I see your eyes lighting up and you're nodding if, well, <laughs> if you can't see. Yeah, my my A score is like a seven or eight, depending on how you interpret one of the questions. And so if you have an A score of four or higher, your odds of developing a substance use disorder or like four to six times the national average. There's a very strong connection. Um, the And that is also why I called my book One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction, because those things are connected. But the but the other side of that is, yes, with, with children today, one, sometimes people ask me, what's the number one thing we could do to reduce the substance use disorder rate in America, which, by the way, is one of the highest rates in the world. Um, and my answer to that is mental health treatment for children, right? Because if we are able, if we intervene earlier, if we if we notice when there is a problem, if you as you say we screen for it and we address it, and we are able to um, teach them new skills or how to you know um, how to recover from whatever has happened, that's going to uh, reduce their risk of having negative outcomes in the future, and that's really where we should be headed. That that I mean I want to I want to help the people who already are in a bad place, but. We do. It does help to focus on that early intervention. And the other thing I'll say is that trauma definitions have expanded. So, for example, um, in my household, my brother was my stepfather's biological child. And he did actually not get really abused physically by my stepfather very much. But you know what? He witnessed all the a lot of abuse. And there were things like we didn't appreciate that even witnessing the violence is a trauma in and of itself or um, or bullying is a big another big you know sort of last 10 years more focus about the sort of traumatic impact of ongoing bullying. So there there are a lot of things that we understand better and I agree we if we can address these things early, we're going to help that child avoid um, so many lost years, painful years, miserable years, uh, and it's also better for society because it will cost society less to address it early. Yeah. 
Thank you for that. That's super important. And um, yeah, and expanding the definitions because we get into like, almost like who's the bigger victim when we're all a victim, whether we're witnessing it or whether, uh, you know, like you said, just you're act, you know, you're, you are literally being abused in the moment, whether it's physical, mental, emotional. Um, I wonder, I know we're, we're getting short on time, but I wonder a little bit just cause I'm, I'm a writer and I wonder, you know, I know so many things have helped you in healing and I met you through California. Well, actually maybe tell us about how you got your book deal, because I know you got it. I think it pitch Arama, which is an event that I do <laughs> not me, but it's uh, the organization I work with. Um, maybe tell us how you got your book deal and maybe how the writing process specifically writing, because I find writing very healing, a way to process that I use. And it's also used in many forms of recovery because you can write, I like to write with my hands. So I'm making writing gestures. <laughs> uh how the writing process helps and heals you and how you got your book deal so um when I was a judge it was sort of a natural reflection time right like how the heck did I go from shooting meth at 17 until 32 I mean it was not a short period of time um to being a federal judge and and remember I had done a lot of therapy I was I did uh individual therapy with my trauma therapist but I also did um group therapy with women who had trauma histories for several years my husband and I did couples counseling so I had done a lot of work sort of in the first 10 years of my recovery but by the time of the book I actually hadn't focused that much on it in quite a while and so it was a time to sort of revisit certain things and it did help me um resolve emotionally a couple things that had sort of been nagging at me like there's one event that I had always second guessed myself about whether I made the right decision and when I wrote the book it was clear to me like absolutely you, you know there was real there was no other realistic choice and so that was nice to release that sort of um self-judgment self you know underlying um, and then the other thing is that when I when I thought about the book I had actually not read a lot of memoir and so I thought well I better read some <laughs> Oh, and um, and I read memoirs, including particularly recovering memoirs. And what I noticed was that I felt like most memoirs don't show where the addiction came from. They sort of leap into the chaos and the misery. And I felt it was important to show what led up to it, to show why it made sense for me to, to really aggressively pursue substances the way I did. Um, and but then I do have, of course, some of the, you know, the misery of of my uh, meth use. Um, and but then at the end, a lot of memoirs, it's like I went to a couple of meetings and everything was great. And it's like, well, that's not how recovery works. So 30 percent of my book is actually my first three years of recovery, because I thought it was important to show like what a real example of how it evolves and to give that as sort of a more realistic um, approach. So those were some and then I have some guidelines and checklists. But so those were some of the things I was thinking about about the structure, but also I was an excellent legal writer, but when I started reading memoir, I realized, oh my gosh, it's written like a novel. Like <laughs> I did not know how to do that. And so I, you know, I, I, I'm proud that I was honest with myself. It's like, no, actually I need these skills. And so I took memoir writing classes, even fiction, like how to write a good scene. I took a class on diet, like a half a day class on how to write good dialogue. I mean, I really, um, focused on building the skills that I felt that I lacked. And so I think that was part of the reason the book turned out um, as well as it did uh, from a writing standpoint. In fact, my proudest writing moment is when the library journal, you know, that recommends books to the librarians, um, the review was not only that it was a harrowing yet ultimately rewarding story, but my favorite part 
it was page turning prose. And I thought if the librarians of America thinks it's page turning prose, I think I did a pretty good job of figuring out how to write this thing. <laughs> um, and then on the book deal, I did attend the pitch panel. I think it's like in the spring that the WNBA does. And I met, I wasn't quite done with the book. I was close, but not quite done. But several agents expressed interest for when I was done. And I ended up actually signing with one of those agents who then landed me a book deal with um, HCI, which is a smaller press, but in the recovery and self-help space. So that's sort of the trajectory of my, of my memoir writing. I love it. And I love that you took all these classes and um, yeah, there's, there's just so much there. And I love that you, yeah, that I love that you expanded those parts of your life where that does happen, where you're just like, Hmm, you know, she went from this and then all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> and, and, Suddenly she's this, and then my, are they going to make your book into a movie? Cause it would make a great movie. It is. And in movies, we do kind of do that. Like you're, you know, you have to condense it so we can sit through it, but your book would make a great movie. Has anybody thought about optioning it? Well, somebody's reading it that does movies for lifetime, but you know how these things go. We'll see. So if anybody's listening, there's no commitment yet. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 I love that. And yeah. I have a question for the two of you. Okay. So when we think of addiction, we think of drugs, alcohol, um, but sometimes when we're going through recovery, we pick up other addictions of wellness. How do we make sure that we aren't going from one to another, that we're trying to even things out? I mean, I think part of that is addressing what's underneath the the substances, right? Why, you know, what happened? If you, if, if you don't address the sort of the root cause, it's going to be more likely that you're going to sort of self-medicate with some other behavior, you know, sex or gambling or eating. Um, I mean, even things like, uh, you know, perfectionism, as I mentioned, can be a real hole or overwork. That can be overwork is sort of the most um, the most positively rewarded uh, problem in America. right? <laughs> you know, good job. It's like, yeah, but you're cutting off the rest of your life. So I do think and, and it's also more than that is that I knew that if I was ever going to sort of really be happy, um, really be my true original self, I had to address not just the substances, but the root cause of the substances, which for me was the trauma and the PTSD. Yeah. And just to piggyback off what Mary Beth said, it's for me, I, I also heard the word in the beginning, um, thinking about spiritual junkie, you know, you're not a spiritual junkie, but that could be, you know, people have said that kind of jokingly, but the reality being a yoga teacher, I've seen it play out where if you don't deal with that underlying, those underlying issues, I'm not just talking about other people, but myself included, you can go into perfectionism. And then what kind of yoga teacher are you? You're wanting everyone to do the things, the, you know, whatever the practice is perfectly or overdo it, overwork to kind of obliterate any pain that you're feeling. So I think we have to be on that on that lifelong path, on that path of, you know, we can call it recovery. We can call it just the life life journey where we are always looking and being mindful, not saying my way is the only way. Cause I think that's what happens when you start to get into that um, kind of addictive phase, you start telling everybody what to do. And I know that I can go, I totally go there. Maybe that's why I'm a teacher, but <laughs> I'll find myself like, oops, you know, like this is what you should do. And this is what you should do. And it's like, what am I not looking at? Cause I'm really on my little pulpit today. Yeah. 
So any final questions, Karen, or I want to make sure we, we um, tell everybody how to get Mary Beth's book because it is a healing book. Absolutely. I mean, Mary Beth, you have opened up a dialogue here that is so important. We have to keep it going because some of us don't even realize, you know, how bad our addictions might be. And uh, I know I've been down that road. And in the last year, I've just made changes, but I have to keep remembering what it got me here today. What am I doing? And can I do the same thing tomorrow? Because I might not be able to. And, you know, just keeping my eyes open, listening to you, listening, you know, to Elise and and other people who've been down these paths, you know, let's share it and let's show that you're never too old to make a change and to be happy. I love it. And on that note, where can we find you, Mary Beth? Like you, your writing, your book, where's the best way to find you? So the memoir again is From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. And it's on Amazon and all the usual sites and your bookstore can get it or they have it. It is in the audio, the paperback, as well as the ebook. Um, and then I'm on um, uh, my website, junkinandjudge.com has, uh, for example, my opinion pieces are there as well as a lot of other information. And you can message me through my website and I do answer all messages that I get. And then I'm on X, you know, slash Twitter um, at Mary Betho underscore. And I actually, I, I don't get into arguments with people on Twitter. I use my site to share information. So I'll provide information about new studies or data or articles about mental health and substance use, and then just my recovery thoughts. So I try to make my, my Twitter feed actually be um, useful to people. <laughs> um, and then I'm on LinkedIn too. Um, you can find me there as well. Great. I'm definitely going to follow you on both of those platforms. And that's a great website to remember from junkie to judge. Is it from or junkie to judge? Judge.com. But you know, junkie I mean, it's so Googleable at this point. You didn't have to remember yeah. my name. You just have to remember the junkie judge. You can find me. I'm easy. Yeah, to- exactly. <laughs> she's an original. She's an original. I'm going to share <laughs> that with my mom too, because she's a judge. <laughs> Good. Yes. And Elise, show your book again, because it is the sponsor of your show. It is Super Ager, and this show is How to Super Age. You can look younger, have more energy, a better memory, and live a long and healthy life. You look better when you are in alignment with yourself. It's not a beauty book, but there's a couple of like, you know, avocado. You can put avocado on your face. You don't have to go to the salon or go get some expensive facial. You can go to the grocery store. This book is all about simple, delicious, and um, fun ways to live a long and healthy life. Well, welcome back. And Mary Beth, thank you for joining us today. And uh, we'll be back again. So thanks, Elise. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.